0: If you're new today, if you are, if you just maybe need a little refresher, uh, we're continuing a sermon series today called Wild for Jesus. Some of you hear that and go, oh boy, what does that mean? Is this the sermon where we wear Hawaiian shirts and bang our chests and make Hawaiian calls and sound like animals? Well, no. Uh, that'll be the next sermon series, so you can get ready for that. Um, no, this is not not that kind of a sermon series. We're exploring when wild things happen when people in Scripture encounter Jesus. And, and Jeremy was here last week, and he talked to us about the story of Zacchaeus. And in our reading today, we've definitely got one of those kind of stories. As it turns out, Jesus is the one acting a bit wild. The kids, too, but Jesus himself is acting a bit wild and crazy, to be honest, and actually it looks a little bit more like anger. So what is up with that? Jesus is angry. So before we get into that, I want to ask you a question. And some of you are really going to enjoy this question. What makes you angry? Um, now, usually I encourage audience participation. So before you start uh, just yelling out things, um, let's just chill uh, and think about that in the quietness of your heart. Uh, what makes you angry? What are those things that just get your... Blood boiling. What are those things that get under your skin? What makes you angry? What gets you all riled up? Now, um, if you had any siblings, anybody having siblings growing up? How about older siblings? Yeah? Okay, a lot of us. So you can identify with this. For me, what made me angry growing up was my older brother. Just nothing made me more angry, not just him, but the things that he did to me. So here's a scenario, and you younger siblings out there, we can have a, a moment of sorrow for ourselves here. Um, so here's how the scenario goes. He starts to pick on me, right? Nah, 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 nah. Temper's flare. One thing leads to another. Uh, the fight begins. Little Johnny starts to scream. Mom comes running, and who do you think gets busted? Yeah, little Johnny, the the guy that was picked on, right? And Nathan's just, a, I don't know. I don't know what happened. I just he's just started crying. I don't know what he's doing on the floor with blood coming out of his head. I don't know how it happened. Nothing made me angrier than that. Or maybe for you, what really makes you angry is road rage. Just come on, admit it. Anybody? You're in church, people, be honest. Don't lie, not in church. Road rage, yes, some people are raising each other's hands, okay? it's This is a big one for me too. So uh, you know that moment when you get really, really angry, you're, you're late for work and it's like every run around you on the interstate on your way to work is like conspiring against you, right? Just to make you angry, you know what I mean? Like they all call each other in the morning and are like, okay, so we know that John is going to be running like seven minutes late for work today on 235 and we're just all going to surround him and drive really slow and make sloppy, you know, sloppy driving and all that stuff. And you just honk your horn and, and you start yelling at people and showing them uh, different Fingers on your hand and different stuff um, in a Christian, in a Christian loving way, of course, um, because they need conviction, right? That would be the Christian thing um, to do, because you know how to drive. What makes you angry? What makes you angry? Maybe it's the lovely time this time of year when your air conditioner happens to stop working. Can anybody identify with that? Yeah, your air conditioner stopped. On the hottest week of the century, pretty much. Nothing makes you angry like that. Uh, we could go on and on and on and on, I'm sure, and say what we're all angry about, but this isn't our soapbox session today. Instead, when you look at our story today, Jesus isn't acting just wild, it seems like he's acting angry too. You know, we talk about how Jesus can identify with us. It seems like Jesus is upset and frustrated, and he actually seems a bit out of control. Instead of me telling you about it, um, I want to show you a clip of Jesus coming into the temple in our scripture reading for today. So let's take a look. Interesting, huh? Not the side of Jesus that we see very often. So what's going on here? Is, Is God, is Jesus himself having a bad day? Maybe he's a party crasher having a bit of a temper tantrum, you know, did Jesus get, just get up on the wrong side of the bed or what's going on? Because I thought you're thinking Jesus is supposed to be nice and calm. I've never seen that side of Jesus before. Well, let's take a look. If you've got your Bibles, let's turn to Matthew chapter 21. Where Kathy read for us today, and as you're turning there, you might see the beginning of, this, uh, beginning of this chapter is very familiar. We started today at verse 12, but right before that is the very familiar story of Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is when Jesus comes into Jerusalem uh, on the Sunday before Holy Week, his last week before his death and resurrection, and he's coming in and, the, and he's riding on a donkey, and the crowds are yelling Hosanna and welcoming him in, uh, welcoming in Jesus as King. And so when Jesus enters the temple, something gets underneath him. There's this fire that starts to rage in him, and. <laughs> He kind of goes nuts. I mean, you saw it there. So let's look at this in verse 12. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. Now let's pause here for a second because it'd be easier for us to just kind of go into the story and just skip over and say, well, Jesus had a bad day. Let's move on and get to some of the other more fun things that Jesus did. This doesn't seem very fun, but let's pause for a second and ask the question, what is it that Jesus really wants us to see here? Yeah, we all get angry, but was Jesus really angry? What What's going on inside Jesus' heart? What is it that he wants us to see? If you just assume you know, you might think, well, you, you look at the story, Jesus is, Jesus doesn't like money. He, Jesus is just against all kind of wealth and money, and he's against selling things at church, and we should never have books or CDs or, or coffee, and heaven forbid, if Jesus came to our church, he would never eat a donut hole. That would just be against everything that he even though they're heavenly. I don't know why he wouldn't have one. But Jesus doesn't doesn't like selling things in the church. Jesus is totally against that. But before we go down that road, before we assume, let's look at what Jesus actually says. Verse 13. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers or a den of thieves. So it seems like Jesus isn't necessarily against selling things. He's against people getting robbed in the temple. You see, it's become a den of thieves. So we know that the temple, a little background information here, we know that the temple is kind of the central place of Jewish worship, right? The Jews are God's chosen people from the beginning of the Old Testament with Abraham, uh, the Israelites, and the temple is the central place of worship for the Jewish faith. And one of the things that they do in the temple to worship God before Jesus came was to offer sacrifices, the kind of sacrifices that lead to the forgiveness of sins, and it's kind of based on well, what I can sacrifice and and, and, and based on what I have to bring, based on if I can be a better follower of God, then I'll be in the right relationship. With God, If I can find that perfect white dove or if I can bring my, 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 my perfect white sheep all the way across country without it getting maimed or scarred in some way, then it'll be pure and then it'll be more acceptable to God and then I will be right with God. Then I will be justified with God. Now, of course, that's the old way. That's the old paradigm. We know now that because of Jesus, Jesus is the lamb of of God. Does that make sense? Jesus is the Lamb of God whose death once and for all sets us right with God, right? We know that. Jesus was the Lamb of God. We don't need to go sacrificing any animals. That's not a part of the worship service later on today, right? Jesus was the once and for all sacrifice. But before Jesus, if you're a good and devout Jew, this is like a regular trip that you take to the temple. So imagine that you live far away. So putting this in modern day terms, so you are here in Des Moines and you are a good, devout uh, a Jew in Jesus's day, but you actually live in Iowa City. And why did I choose that? Because that's the home of God's team. So you live... you <laughs> yeah, Okay claps, okay, <laughs> sarcastic claps, so you live in Iowa City, home of God's team, and you need to go to Des Moines, and you're a Jew, right, so now you could, all your precious animals, this is like your sole source of income, you could get all your sheep and goats and doves, and you could try to bring them, but that's a long way to go, and they might fall out of the car, or a wolf might bite the sheep's ear, and then it's not pure anymore, so the better thing to do in those days is that the really smart people that got their economics right at the temple said, Huh. What if we just sold people's, people, animals for sacrifice right here? Hmm. Interesting. Not a bad idea, right? The, the, the goal was to make it easier for people to worship. You could get them right at the temple. Well, the people that were running that service, that selling of animals at the temple, they were good with money. They understood how business works. They understood economics. And so what they would do, if, the, if there's a higher demand than supply, what do you do? you raise prices, right? You hike up the prices. The only problem with that is that it was making it harder and harder and harder for God's people to worship, right? That's how what God had called them to do, to offer sacrifices, to offer a burnt sacrifice. But the problem was a lot of people that came to the temple were not wealthy, And they didn't have the money to pay for those raised prices. And so the the people in the temple, the money changers, as we read about in scripture, were making it harder and harder and harder for God's people to get connected with him. What do you think upsets Jesus the most? (laughs) That. That. When people put barriers between you, between one of his children and his father. Nothing upsets Jesus more. And so Jesus looks at this situation and he says, that's not right. That's not right. There's selfish gains. There's lying and cheating going on in the house of God just to worship him. And it's not right. So it's important for us to ask, okay, if it wasn't anger necessarily, then what was it that was on Jesus's heart? And if we look a little bit closer this same story, a similar story, is in the Gospel of John. Now, this took place earlier in Jesus' ministry. There's a lot of chapters. There's a lot of time in between these. But in John chapter 2, verse 17, actually it says this. And let's read this together up on the screen if you can read that. This is what, right after Jesus turns the tables, and you heard this in the video, this is what the disciples remember that was said about Jesus. Let's read this. Passion for your house will consume me. That's an Old Testament prophecy from Psalm 69. Hundreds and hundreds of years ago before this ever happened, they, the, the, the prophet prophesied about the Messiah that passion for God's house would consume him. And now that prophecy is coming true in the person of Jesus. Notice it says passion, or another translation is zeal, or even another translation is the fire burned inside of him. I mean, that doesn't... Doesn't that kind of make you think of passion? Zeal, passion for God's house, will consume him. It doesn't say anger will consume him. And so if you look up passion, which I did in the dictionary, literally it means any powerful or compelling emotion or feeling. Any powerful or compelling emotion or feeling as in love or hate right? So you can have a deep passion and hate someone, or you can have a deep passion and love someone or something or a group of people. So in this case for Jesus, do you think it's love or hate? (laughs) Probably love, right? We don't see Jesus hating really ever. That's not who he is. So Jesus doesn't hate anyone. That's not what he said. So could it be that Jesus's passion here is an act of love, How is all that that you saw just happen to the table? Could it really be an act of love? Think about it this way, in in a modern sense. So you're out in the front lawn playing with your kids this summer, and uh, you got the slip and slide out there, and everybody's having fun, and you're not paying attention, and it's like the parent's worst nightmare. All of a sudden, you can't find one of your kids, right? And you look, and they're playing in the middle of the street, right? A ball ran out in the middle of the street, and they're they're hanging out right in the middle of the street, two-lane traffic, and all of a sudden, what do you see? A car coming, right? Now, you as a loving parent, what you're probably not going to do is in that moment, are are you going to act nice and calm and gentle and just walk very slowly over to the the street and, and look at your child who's standing in harm's way and say, oh, honey... You know, you shouldn't be there. Um, Could you please come out of the street when you get a chance? Just whenever you feel like it, just come out. There's a car coming, but just, it'll be okay. You're just nice and calm whenever you feel like it. Pretty please? No, that's not how you would act at all, right? Out of love, you would act passionately. Instead, with all the the passion that you can muster, with this compelling emotion, you're going to go running to them. You're going to take swift and decisive action. And they're they're oblivious. They don't know what's going on. And probably along the way, you're yelling, Honey, get out of the street. You don't know what you're doing. Please stop. Come back. Come back. Come back. Are you angry at them in that moment? Not right then. In that moment, as any good parent, you're acting out of love, right? You don't hate your child for running into the street, right? Kids make mistakes. Kids do bad things sometimes. And what I want us to think about this morning is why would it be any different for Jesus and his children? Coming in on Palm Sunday, seeing the temple that day, and if you can picture it, Jesus doesn't see with our eyes. Jesus sees with this kingdom, with this heavenly perspective. And so you have Jesus coming in and he sees his children caught in the street caught in the temple. He sees his children caught up in the game of religion, lying, cheating, buying and selling their way to purchase sacrifices that are never going to be good enough to earn his love, living a life that maybe is not going to lead to death by getting hit by a car, but they're leading a life that could lead to a spiritual death. Why would it be any different for Jesus? And so with passion, with that strong and compelling emotion and love, Jesus, as a good parent, as a good father, God the Father through Jesus, living through him, takes swift and decisive action, and you can see Jesus coming into the temple saying, My children, what are you doing? Stop! Why? Because I love you so much. Children, you don't know what you're doing. Jesus is acting out of love, not anger in that moment. And doesn't that reframe the entire story for us? All of a sudden, I'm no longer asking as I watch a video like that of Jesus and read this story, I'm no longer asking, what kind of a God is this? Can't even control himself. Instead I'm asking, "Whoa, what kind of a God is this that would go to such lengths to save us, his people, from playing the game of religion. Somehow the Jews in the temple that day had made God into some sort of angry and and demanding father that only cared about rules and that nobody could please. Is that the view that you have of God today? I'm never going to be able to please him. He's just a God that sits up in heaven with a giant ruler stick, a ruler waiting for you to mess up so he can slap you on the wrist. Is that your view of the father today? Jesus wants to set the record straight. No wonder Jesus was so passionate. If that's what his people were believing, Jesus says, no, 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 no. That's not how it is. So you can see why Jesus was so passionate. And I want to ask you, what is it that you're passionate about today? Not just what are you angry about? What are you passionate about? What is the fire that burns inside of you? Do you get Angry about little annoyances? Do you, are you holding on to, to bitterness or angry, or anger from the past? Or, like Jesus that day, does your heart beat for the things that God's heart beats for? For compassion and justice. Does your heart beat for those things? And so just like the father that goes running to his child to save his child, Jesus wants to save his people and wants us He wants to save us from playing the game of religion by turning over some tables. So what were the tables that needed to be turned over that day? Well, we have got two tables over here. um, And there was two groups that were represented there that day. And so Jesus went in and he started saying, I'm going to turn over all these TV trays. No, that's not what he said. So Jesus goes into the temple and there's two different groups of people. First of all, there's the Jewish people and they are caught up in striving... To earn God's love. That's the first table that Jesus needed to turn over. And secondly, what we'll get to later, is the chief priests. And they'd made God into someone that's predictable. God was just sort of ho-hum. Jesus had some religion to save people from that day. Jesus had some tables that he needed to turn over that day. Starting with the Jewish people themselves. If you remember, the game went like this. If I can scrape together enough money, then I can buy the perfect lamb, the perfect dove to make uh, the perfect sacrifice and do it just right, then I'll be right with God and I'll get his forgiveness. Is that how it works? No, but so often you and I fall into that trap as well. So imagine the the scenario here with Jesus, this rabbi that shows up. You've, You've been a good Jew your entire life and you've been trying to earn God's forgiveness your entire life, and one day on the street, you encounter this rabbi who looks you right in the eyes, the kind of eyes that can see right into you and everything that's going on and everything that's ever happened to your life, and this rabbi who you've never met before comes up, looks you in the eyes, calls you by name. He's never met you before, by the way. Calls you by name and says, your sins are forgiven. Your slate is wiped clean. Right? Are you kidding me? Are you joking, sir, rabbi? I, I don't know what I would say. Your entire life, you've been making these trips to the temple, sacrifice upon sacrifice just to make God happy. And all of a sudden, this man who claims to be God says, stop, you don't have to do that anymore. What? Are you kidding me? Like This is like somebody walking to you up on the street tomorrow. You're, you're in high school or college, and somebody walks up to you and says, here, here's a master's degree. You don't have to do anything, just there you go, you got it. What, are you kidding me? Jesus is telling people what you're looking for, you already have. I forgive you. So into the temple, the old system of forgiveness, walks Jesus, who we know as the Lamb of God, and little do these Jews know that the one who's standing right in front of them is the true sacrifice that cannot be bought with coins but only received by grace. So this is not a protest by Jesus by any means. It's almost like for those 30 or 40 minutes before they probably set the temple back up, for those 30 or 40 minutes, Jesus was giving everyone a glimpse of the new reality, himself. A week later, Sacrificed on a cross, the Lamb of God. Jesus is offering a new radical alternative to the temple system. The temple system of of striving to be good enough every single day. You see at best, at best, what religion offer what religion without Jesus, you take Jesus out of the center of religion, at best, what religion offers us is trying harder. Is striving. At best, it says, I can earn God's favor by the things that I do, but Jesus says, the price has already been paid. The first table that needed to be turned over for the Jewish people that day was the table of striving. And Jesus comes and he turns over their table, but what did he need to show them that day? What did he need to turn over in their lives? So the question is, how about you? Is there a table that needs to be turned over in your life? And it it seems so simple, but we have modern day sacrifices too, don't we? Every single one of us likes to make sacrifices. Are are you still striving to be good enough to earn God's love today? Or maybe put it this way, to be a good enough husband, to be a good enough wife, to be a good enough father, to be a good enough mother, to be good enough for your boss, to be a good enough follower of Christ? Example, just the other day, I was meeting with a guy, not from this church, from another church, and I, I could just tell that he was a little bit down in the dumps. And I said, so, so um, tell me what's going on. And um, he kind of got this sheepish grin on his face, and he said, you know, Pastor John, it seems kind of strange, but I've just been a Cubs fan for the last 20 years, and I wonder, is it ever going to be enough? And I said, really, is that why you brought me here today? So we meditated on it and prayed and beseech the Lord on the Cubs' behalf. No, we didn't. Um, but what we did do was talk about how he never felt good enough. How he desperately wants to be more of a loving husband, but he doesn't quite know how. How he wants to spend more time with his kids, how he, he always feels torn between work and home. Anybody ever feel that? And live in that tension how even he'd fallen into this lie of believing that he, if he prayed, if he said his prayers just right and prayed long enough so that somehow God would hear him more. How his devotions with God had sort of become a duty instead of a delight. Somehow to make God happy. And of course, I encouraged him and I, I challenged him to, to stand up and to be the man of God and, and to, to, to stop slacking in those areas. But where this strong adult Male started to tear up, and where he couldn't hold back the tears is when I simply asked him, "When are you going to stop performing? When are you going to stop performing for those for God? I, I, you know, all those things are good. All those things you want to do are good. But do you know that you'll never be enough because He is enough for you." You know you're never going to be a good enough dad. You know you're never going to be a good enough husband. God through you will always be enough. And you can stop striving today because your heavenly father is madly in love with you. So you can quit playing the game of religion and quit offering your burnt sacrifices to be good enough. You've heard it before from the book of Ephesians, and let's read this together, this pillar of our faith. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God. That's one of my favorite verses. Jesus says to the Jews that day, not with anger, but with a holy passion, I'm the free gift. I'm what you're looking for. I'm the new sacrifice that's going to be made once and for all. So you can, try and, you can stop trying to earn something that you already have. How much time do you and I spend trying to earn something that's already ours? Today, the question for you is, are you living as a beloved son or daughter or are you living like an orphan that's trying to earn something that God says you already have. Religion at best says I can earn God's favor, but Jesus says the price is already paid. The Jews had this table, multiple tables set up of striving and Jesus came and turned the temples and said, no, it's about grace. Is that your table today that needs to be turned? There's a second group though The story continues. It's not just there. Unfortunately, the game of religion continues for us today. And maybe there's a different table that needs to be turned in your life because there's this other group of people, and we look back at verse 14. It says this, The blind and lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them, meaning Jesus healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David. So the kids are going crazy. They're going nuts like they were up here. They're going nuts and they're dancing and clapping and praising him. It says the leaders and the chief priests were indignant. I don't know if you know what indignant means. That's like anger on steroids, right? They were blowing a gasket. There was steam coming out of their ears, right? They were angry, But this is what Jesus says, and let's read this together. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? Two words for the chief priest that day. Party poopers. That's right, party poopers. It's the classic case of being a party pooper. Do you see what happened? Here we have the chief priest, okay? You gotta get the, the situation here. Here we have the chief priest. These are the guys, the men in those days, that were entrusted to keep the temple full of joy. They were entrusted to keep the temple full of worship and praise. That was the job of a priest. It's what you do. If you're a plumber, you plumb. If you're a teacher, you teach. If you're a priest, You worship. You lead people in worship. But something terrible had happened by the time that Jesus got there. The worship leaders lost their hearts. The worship leaders lost all their joy. What happened? Reminds me in high school of a a part that I had in in the high school musical. Not high school musical in a high school musical, uh, not that one. And we were doing The Music Man. Everybody ever, ever seen The Music Man? Okay, cool. And so um, I don't remember much, but I was this grumpy mayor. And so I had, my hair was gray, and I had this big beard. Um, I was still going through puberty. So it was like really, really low, really, really high. And so my voice would go all over the place. I was Mayor Shin and my job was to be ticked. That was my job for the entire play, was just to be a big old party pooper. And, and there's two things that I remember. I've forgotten all of my lines, but there's two things I remember about my high school musical experience. One, that there was a cute girl in the fake marching band. And I remember one line that I had as a grumpy old mayor. And so the 76 trombones, you know, 76 trombones, da, da, da. And they would come out and the band would play. And every time that happened, I would stand up and at the top of my voice, I would yell, down you people there's no time for singing here be quiet I I can hear it I can hear my my puberty voice just saying it now sit down you people (laughs) that was my job I said that like 10 times there's no time for singing here sit down you people I think the chief priests turned into a bunch of mayor shins here's Jesus healing people in the temple and the kids are going crazy. They had a vacation Bible school at the temple that day and the kids are going crazy. And what did the chief priests say? Sit down. There's no time for singing here. What? Can, can Can you believe it? Jesus isn't the angry one in this story. It's the chief priests that are the angry ones. Kids? Singing in the temple of all places? How could they? Right? Party poopers. Now, you may wonder uh, about this, but uh, myself, um, the last two weeks have been incredible. Uh, vacation Bible School at our West Des Moines campus. I don't know how you cannot get excited about this. 4,000 kids went to Bible school this year from Hope. That's pretty awesome. Absolutely. <laughs> 4,000 kids went to Bible school this summer from Hope. Okay, thank you. It's not even about the numbers. It's about kids experiencing Jesus, right? That's the most important thing. But if there's anything that I notice from watching thousands of kids for two weeks, I know one thing is for sure. It is impossible to be angry at Bible school, right? Go to vacation Bible school and try to be angry, Right? Try to act like Mayor Shin, you'll probably get kicked out of the building. But even if you wanted to, you couldn't. The kids are too cute, the kids are too hilarious, and they come up to you and they have Kool-Aid stains all around their mouth because they've been like sucking on the cup like that, right? They're just all over the place and they're going ballistic and they're, they're worshiping. It is impossible to be mad and angry and not have joy when you're around kids that are singing and dancing and praising God. I mean, can you imagine what one of their songs is the Days of Elijah, right? So you can imagine, try to be angry and sing a Bible school song, right? behold he comes riding on the clouds shining like the sun as the trumpet call so lift your voice it's the year of jubilee out of zion's hill salvation comes (laughs) all the kids boo right you can't be mad around kids it's impossible unless you've lost your heart unless you've lost your joy unless you've lost your passion, unless you're playing religion. Somewhere along the way, the priests had got lost in the game of religion. And instead of worshiping God and leading others and worshiping with a holy passion, it was about tradition. It was about keeping order. It was about worshiping tradition over worshiping God. It was about making the temple a place where everything was predictable, because for them, God was predictable. They didn't expect anything new from God. In fact, watch what Jesus says to the same group of people. I love this verse in John chapter 5. It says this, verse 39. You study the scriptures, Jesus says, diligently because you think that in them you will have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. But Jesus says, you refuse to come to me to have life. Jesus looks at these same religious leaders in the gospel of John and he says, guys, you're missing the forest for the trees, right? It's like the master of the dog that's trying to train the dog, that's trying to point the dog to the door, right? And you look at your dog and you point him to the door and instead of looking at the door, the dog just stares at your finger. That's what the chief priests were doing. They were just staring at the scriptures and Jesus was standing right there. God had become predictable for them. Their table, again, was predictability. They said, God's not going to do anything new. I think I know who God is. The chief priest table was predictability. And Jesus says, I'm not in a box. In fact, I'm standing right here. And Jesus needed to turn over their table as well. Has your relationship with God become predictable? Maybe you're not trying to earn God's love today, but has it become predictable? Had you forgotten the same God, the same Yahweh that the Jews had forgotten? The God who is anything but safe. The God that like parts seas and shows up in burning bushes and talks to his people. The God that sweeps into the temple and at one moment has a, has a, has a whip and is whipping over the table's and and throwing over over the temple. And the next moment, he's tenderly touching the face of somebody that he loves and healing them. Do you know that God today? Do you know a God that is alive and living and active? Or is your God sitting in an old dusty Bible on a shelf? We got to wrestle with that question today. Our God is alive and moving and active. You see, Jesus came to turn the table of the chief priests as well. And maybe today that table of predictability, maybe that's your table. And maybe today it's time to re-engage with this God. Not your parents' faith, not just the faith that that you grew up with, not just the faith you have here on Sundays for an hour, that you have in your life group for an hour, but the God who's willing to tear apart the temple to get you to stop playing the games that you're playing. The chief priests had the table of predict or not of striving they had the table of predictability is that your table today and jesus says today i want to turn that table into a holy passion for the things that are on my heart is that your table today stop trying to make god predictable and worship him for who he is Jesus turned the temple tables that day because of a holy, righteous passion, because he saw his people trying to earn him and the, 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 the priests trying to conform him, and he turned their tables. Instead of striving and predictability, today you're offered grace and passion. Now, you might be saying, you know, John, I love that whole passion thing, but all you're basically saying is if you really love Jesus, then you're going to have all this energy and all this excitement, and I've got to be an extrovert every single day, and I've got to be hyped up in worship, and I've got to be jumping and singing and clapping, and that's what real passion for Jesus is. If that's the message you walk away from here today, you've missed something. You've missed the point. Do you ever wonder why the people that write about Jesus, about his final days of getting flogged and beaten and crucified, why they call that the passion of the Christ? It's because the Latin roots of the word passion are actually surrender and sacrifice. Maybe it's why that same Jesus says, if you want to find life, you'll lose it. You lose it for my sake, you'll surrender it. Real passion is sacrifice is laying down your agenda and saying god i want your agenda for my life you'll live with passion and doesn't give it, it gives this whole new meaning to the question are you wild for jesus are you wild for jesus today and maybe the wild ones that jesus is looking for among us here today are not the biggest ones they're not the loudest ones they're not just the ones up front they're the ones whose actions speak louder than their words The wild ones are the ones who are not, they're they're, they're all in, not just with energy, but because their hearts are in the right place. Their hearts are set after him. And I just want to tell you as we close that there's not a week that goes by that I don't thank God for you as a church. Tiffany and I sit around the dinner table at home. We used to get all frustrated with ourselves because like, oh, we're talking about church again. We always talk about church. Church church, 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 that's all we ever talk about. Now, there's boundaries to that. We need to have a life too. But about a year ago, we said, you know what? We don't need to get mad at ourselves. Why? Because you talk about the things that you love. You talk about the things that you're passionate about, and that's you. Thank you for being a passionate church not just in energy and excitement but in sacrifice and surrender. Thank you for your passion. Thank you for your passion that filled over 200 backpacks to love kids that Jesus loves. Thank you for your passion that serves your family here every week when you set up chairs and when you, when you make French toast when you don't have to and, and, and you be a, you're an usher and you're a greeter. Thank you for your passion when you open up your home to other people and say, you know what? I don't care if my home's a mess. I, w- I need other people in my life. I need relationships. I do. I need community where you study and you worship and you pray and you eat together. Thank you for your passion. Thank you for your passion that says, we're going to worship here in an elementary school gym because it's this neighborhood where our neighbors live and we want to connect them to Jesus. That's the reason that we exist. That's the passion, the heartbeat of this church. Thank you for being the kind of church that so often chooses the difficult over the easy. Thank you for being the kind of church that so often chooses the inconvenient over the convenient who moves out of your comfort zone rather than staying in it. And of course, we're still learning. But thank you for being a passionate church because you follow a passionate Jesus. Thank you for being a passionate minister. Thank you. <laughs> so that's the invitation today. I'm not going to beat around the bush. Jesus wants to turn over your tables today. And only you and him know what they are. Stop striving today and start living in the grace that's already yours. And stop thinking that God is predictable today because he's not. He's a God of passion. And he wants to live life with you. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together.